Well, as you see, no one else up here. That means I'm back in Deuteronomy. This evening we'll be looking at Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 5, as we continue our slow trek through this great book. If you're using one of our Pew Bibles, you can find that reading on page 210. 210. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 5. First, let's pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for the light of your word. It is a lamp to our feet, and that it radiates every facet of our lives. We pray this evening as we come to contemplate what it says about a most difficult topic, that you would give us grace to receive it, give us hearts that are obedient to your word, and give us eyes that see Christ, who is the bridegroom of his church. You do ask these things in his name. Amen. Deuteronomy 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not Take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife, whom he has taken. Praise God for the reading of his word. In 1970, the state of California became the first state to pass legislation establishing no-fault divorce laws. And since then, every other state in the United States has followed suit. And most of us then have lived nearly all of our lives in a world where divorce is common. They come often. It's socially accepted as a norm, and it, and it can happen without even having to offer grounds for the dissolution of a marriage contract. And so if we open up the Gospels, if we were to go to the Gospel of Matthew tonight, and we were to open up and read Jesus' words there about divorce, they would come crashing into our contemporary context with shocking force. Jesus says this in Matthew 19, verse 9. He says, and I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus' words are radically countercultural in our world. But in that way, our cultural circumstances actually recover something of the shock of what Jesus' first hearers would have experienced when he said that. We think divorce has never been common prior to us, but that's actually not true. 
Indeed, the whole reason Jesus has to say those words in Matthew 19 is because he's interacting with the Pharisees who, through their rabbinic tradition, had made divorce rather easy and rather common. Established rules that men could divorce their wives for any cause, at least in one rabbinical tradition. And furthermore, in the larger Greco-Roman world to which the New Testament was written, to which the apostles would have taken the gospel, Roman law had made it quick and easy for both men and women to divorce their spouses without legally having to establish grounds for that divorce. It is the fruit of Christianity that has made divorce less common, at least in the recent centuries of the West. Jesus' words about divorce would have been just as shocking and just as countercultural, both to the Jews who he spoke to and the Gentiles who would have read Matthew's gospel in the first century. Just as shocking to them as it would be to any who, in our world, who is accustomed to the idea of no-fault divorce. And so, as we come to think about not just what Deuteronomy says, but what about the whole Bible has to say about divorce, we should dispense with the thought that would reason this way. Yeah, we live in a different world than Jesus did. Because we don't. Really, we don't when it comes to this question. No-fault divorce was in his world, and that's exactly what he's taking down in Matthew 19. And looking at Moses' even more ancient words in Deuteronomy 24 remind us that the problem of divorce is not unique to the world that came about after the sexual revolution. Indeed, the way that sin threatens marriage and the sexual integrity for which God designed humanity is an evil whose origins lie in antiquity, not in modernity. Yet in considering the evil that is divorce, this text simultaneously prompts us to consider the goodness of the divine gift of marriage. The monstrous tragedy of the dissolution of a marriage, it's only clear as such a horrible outcome is set against the splendid reality of what God has created marriage to be what he's actually established in the covenant bonds between a man and a wife. And that's most clear, not just from the light of what marriage is, as it is an ordinance of creation that is given in God's common grace to all humanity. It is even more especially clear when we consider how marriage functions within the kingdom of heaven, within the covenant life of God's people, within the advancement of his church, And in the way, as the Apostle Paul puts it, marriage illumines for us the bonds between Christ and his bride. So the truth I want you to see from Scripture tonight is this. God has given marriage to advance his church. And he calls us to protect it in reliance on his grace. God has given marriage to advance his church, and he calls us to protect it in reliance upon his grace.
Three points we'll consider. First, the threat to marriage. Second, the importance of marriage. And third, the, the protection of marriage. The threat of marriage, the threat to marriage, the importance of marriage, the protection of marriage. So let's begin with our first point, the threat to marriage. This law here in Deuteronomy 24 is the only law in the entirety of the Torah that directly legislates the circumstances of divorce. Other passages in the laws of Moses speak to the circumstances of divorced persons, but these verses alone deal with the particulars of breaking a marriage covenant. And it's important to note here that Moses is not commanding divorce on certain grounds. Rather, what he's doing is regulating its consequences should it occur. Yet it's quite hazy what exactly the grounds for divorce are in this law. We read verse 1, as the ESV translated, that this divorcing husband has found, quote, some indecency in his wife. The Hebrew phrase, which underlies that translation, it is notoriously difficult to understand. The literal translation of the Hebrew words there would be the nakedness of the thing. What is that? There's much uncertainty about the exact meaning of this phrase. And that uncertainty is not just a product of the present. It's not like somehow we lost some clear meaning that was there and evident 2,000 years ago in Jesus' day because the rabbinical schools of Jesus' day actually had a split over what this phrase meant. They had produced two different schools of thought about what the legal grounds could be for divorcing one's wife. Uh, there was a school of thought that came from this rabbi named Shammai. He taught that the the phrase referred to something sexual in nature. And thus, his school of thought would only permit divorce in the case of some kind of sexual immorality. However, there was another school of thought propounded by a rabbi named Hillel, a very famous rabbi. And they taught that the phrase some indecency referred simply to any cause that a man might have that would find him, his wife, him displeasing his wife. Anything that upset him about his wife. And so Hillel's school of thought on the matter that came to be known actually as any cause divorce, any cause divorce. And that actually sheds quite a bit of light of what's going on in Matthew 19. When the Pharisees come to a talk to Jesus about the topic of divorce, because in Matthew 19.3, the Pharisees ask Jesus this question. They ask, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They're asking for Jesus' opinion about Hallel. They're not just fishing around for some cause that Jesus might provide for divorce. They're specifically asking his opinion about another rabbi's thought, as he interpreted this passage in Deuteronomy 24 what was known as any cause divorce. And even though there was vigorous public debate, even in Jesus' day, about what the school of thought was right among the rabbis, one could imagine what school the common man probably would have sided with. Let's see. Should I go with the interpretation that allows me only to divorce my wife if she commits some sort of sexual immorality, or this interpretation over here that allows me to divorce her if she burns my dinner? It's a big mystery why divorce was so common among Jews, wasn't it? 
As one New Testament scholar points out that the common Israelite wouldn't have been aware of all of the interpretive intricacies of the different positions when it came to how to interpret Deuteronomy 24, but they would have at least known the basics so that they could pick the right lawyers. Now, interpretations of the rabbis of Jesus' day notwithstanding, this phrase in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, cannot mean adultery. Moses has already given laws dealing with adultery, and they call for the execution of the unfaithful spouse. So whatever this ground for divorce is, it cannot be sexual infidelity. It is uncertain. And perhaps that uncertainty is just the point. Because this measure is a remedial measure. It exists to restrain the evils of divorces that were pursued on grounds that violate the creational ideal for marriage. That is exactly what Jesus says about this law. Matthew 19.8, he tells the Pharisees, because of your hardness of heart... Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. In the laws of Moses, God permits an evil to occur without prosecuting and penalizing that evil. He forbears it, but at the same time he restrains the effects of that evil, especially upon the women who would be divorced. Notice in verse 1 that a man who would do this, had to provide his wife a certificate of divorce. That certificate was actually a way of protecting the woman. It meant that she had a legal document that she could produce that would ensure her the right to go and to marry another man in a world where being single was meant you were very vulnerable. And this was actually a radical concept in Israel's larger world. In the laws of Hammurabi, for instance, a man could leave his wife and children anytime he wanted to, and he could come back and reclaim them anytime he wanted to, even if she had married another man. And this, of course, made it extremely difficult for divorced women to get remarried, since few men would want to risk an ex-husband showing up out of the blue to reclaim his wife and stepkids. And so against the surrounding context of Israel's world and these ancient laws, this law in Deuteronomy 24, which provides a woman with a certificate of divorce, proving that she could remarry, and prohibiting the husband from coming back and reclaiming her, is actually countercultural, and it's a protective measure against vulnerable women. Furthermore, we see in verses 2 through 4 that this prohibition against the first husband remarrying this woman after she had been married to another man protects her in a way as well. This law protects this woman from being a kind of sexual football punted between two men. As we see in the wording of verse 4, it envisions this reunion with the first husband to be something that's abominable, something unclean according to the holiness of God's law. But we should note well what exactly has precipitated such a divorce in the first place. Look at verse 1. Such a woman has found no favor. 
She's found no favor in the eyes of her divorcing husband. The Hebrew word for favor there appears in other places in the Old Testament and sometimes gets translated as grace. In Genesis 6-8, it's the word for what Noah finds in the eyes of the Lord. He finds favor. He finds divine favor, and it proves to be his salvation. When we consider that motivating factor that this divorced woman finds no favor, no grace in the eyes of her husband, we see clearly what Jesus means then in Matthew 19. This grows out of hardness of heart. Sin is afoot. And it's not the sin of the woman being divorced, but the husband who seeks to rid himself of her because he has no grace to continue to give her favor to continue to love her in the way that he pledged himself to love her in the covenant of marriage. And so this law exists to restrain evil outcomes which arise from evil hearts. And it's no accident that it sits right next to another law which highlights the vital importance of marriage for the life of God's people. That brings us to our second point, the importance of marriage. The law in verse 5 frees a newly married man from military service for the first year of his new marriage. Serving in Israel's army, of course, would have brought the risk of an untimely death, only but a short time after being wed to a new bride. But more than that, as we see, he's also free from any other public duty, not just those that might prove lethal to him. He's to be unentangled with any sort of responsibility that would have distracted him from establishing his new household. This, of course, has the practical benefit of allowing him to devote himself to his new family wholeheartedly, undividedly, to get it started on on a firm foundation. However, the intent of this law aims at more than just the practical nuts and bolts of getting the economy of a new household up and running in a good way. As we can see at the end of verse 5, this freedom from military service and from civic obligation was so that he could what? He could be happy with his new wife, happy with her for at least a full year. Economic utility is not the sole aim, but gladness and joy are purposed as well. And it's joy with his new wife. Marital bliss is the goal. What more contrasting picture could we have in contradistinction to the graceless dysfunction of this husband in the previous law that pursues divorce against his wife, whom he does not favor? Side by side to the image of this hard-hearted husband who puts away his wife, because he's no grace for her, is this law safeguarding the blessed happiness of a newlywed couple. And so in putting these two things right next to each other, something of the tragedy of divorce is brought to light. It's, it's so radically counter to the purposes of what God has designed for marriage. And furthermore, we we see in this second law just how important the marital bond was in Israel's life. Its initial establishment trumped all other public duties. The reasons for that are not hard to discover. 
The whole covenant life of Israel was built on the duties of the family. The greatest commandment, the centerpiece of the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6, that you will love the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, is immediately followed by commands to then take your faith and hand it down to your children. To catechize. If Israel's life was to have any hope at all of going well for her in the land, that God was giving to her, then the integrity of marriages and thus the integrity of the families that came out of marriages needed to be safeguarded. Husbands and wives needed to love each other. Children needed to honor their parents, learn from them, obey them. Parents needed to instruct their children, discipline them, nurture them in covenant love. The, the dynamics of the covenant family is at the center of Israel's national life. Marriage was and is the basic building block, not only of society, but also of the church, even in the New Testament, as it is the matrix out of which the covenant family grows. What's more, as we read from Paul in Ephesians 5, and we read in John's apocalypse, in his visions of the church married to the Lamb, What we find is that marriage is the most suitable metaphor to describe Christ's own relationship with the church. Marriage is this living parable that exists to exhibit to us something of the bliss and the intimacy of what it means to be united to Christ as his people. And this vital importance then of what marriage is is reflected in the way that Jesus handles this law of divorce that we're looking at in Deuteronomy 24. Recall that Christ does not come to destroy the law but to fulfill it. In him, in all of his teaching, we do not find a relaxation of the essential demands of the law. Rather, we find the exact opposite. We find an intensification of those demands. And so while divorce is countenanced under the Mosaic Covenant, as God sought to restrain the hard-heartedness of his people, in the New Covenant, divorce is allowed only for two reasons. One, Jesus lists, which is sexual immorality. The other one, Paul lists in 1 Corinthians 7, which is abandonment, which eventually amounts to a kind of sexual immorality. Nothing else, nothing else forms the grounds for divorce in the New Testament. Hence, What Christ tells the Pharisees in Matthew 19, 8 through 9, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus blows apart no-fault divorce. He certainly does provide a legitimate grounds for divorce, namely sexual immorality, but his point is that men who divorce their wives for any other reason are not actually divorced in the eyes of God. And so what he's doing is he's saying this this idea of any cause divorce that the school of Hillel had dreamt up was a farce. Now it's interesting what follows in Matthew 19 on the other end of Jesus' radical statement. The disciples hear Jesus' words and they respond with a bit of cynical humor. Matthew 19.10, they say, If such is the case with a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. You know, they're making a crass joke. 
really, that if this is how strict the laws of divorce really are, then it would be better not to get married than to get stuck, chained into a marriage in which you can't find an escape hatch. But whatever sort of locker room cynicism the disciples intend by their comment in that moment, Jesus pulls them up short by taking their words as an occasion for a serious response, a response in which he actually lays out the possibility of lifelong singleness. Jesus responds with this mysterious saying about eunuchs, Matthew 19, 12. He says, for there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now, I don't think I have to persuade you that it's implausible that Jesus is literally talking about men who might castrate themselves for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus saying then? Well, what Jesus is talking about there is essentially the same thing Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7. And that is that there are some Christians who have the calling of singleness. Some Christians can choose to remain in a life of celibacy and singleness for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Some Christians live in that, even though they may not want to, but they're called into those circumstances, at least for the time being. And that's an important thing to reflect on, especially... In the context of a church, as we, we together think about the importance of marriage, because I know that many of you are single. Some of you are single through the gut-wrenching tragedy of divorce. Some of you are single through the sorrow of death. Others of you are single because you've never married. But hear this. Singleness is not a curse. It's not. Whoever you are and whatever gifts you might have, if you're single, pay attention to Jesus' words in Matthew 19 and Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7. They're words of encouragement for you. If you're a single Christian, your life, your life is not empty. It is filled with the goodness of Christ. And you've been actually given an opportunity in the logic of both Jesus and Paul to leverage your unmarried state for the sake of the kingdom of heaven to serve the church, to serve your family, to serve and work for the glory of God in ways that married people cannot. That's Paul's point. You're in good company. Paul, the guy who wrote half the New Testament, stands in the singles club of the kingdom of heaven. But if you are married, you need to note that the kingdom of heaven provides you with the grace and the power that you need to live out your marriage as you should to protect it, to safeguard its importance. Jesus may speak very narrowly about legitimate grounds for divorce, but his larger point in Matthew 19 is that marriage for the citizens of the kingdom of heaven is intended to be a permanent thing. How do we make that happen? How do we find the resources that are necessary to, to build a marriage that lasts? It doesn't end in divorce. So that brings us to our third point, the protection of marriage. Now, most, if not all, of you have a firm conviction, biblically already in your hearts, that divorce is inconceivable. Perhaps you're like Ruth Bell Graham. When she was asked by a journalist if she had ever contemplated divorcing her husband, Billy Graham, and she responded, divorce? No. Murder? Yes. Now, but as committed and confident as you may be to 
the unbreakable character of your nuptial vows, still you need to hear God's word afresh every day. Still you have to be vigilant to, to implement that word in your, in your marriage. We, we need to apply Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10, 12 broadly across our lives. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. Jesus may speak about the legitimate grounds for a divorce, but his larger point is that marriage, for those who are the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, it's intended to be permanent. And so the logic of the gospel needs to shape and to mold our marriages. Now certainly, when we think about what does that look like, where do we go to find what this looks like? There are passages, there are plenty of passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament that explicitly address what Christian marriages should look like and talk about marriage in in very forward terms. But it would be a mistake, it would be a mistake for us to think that the only thing the Bible has to say about protecting and maintaining marriage is contained in the places that explicitly mentions marriage. The gospel logic that governs all of human relationships more broadly should certainly govern our marriages more specifically. So if you want a good place to start in thinking about what it means to be proactive in protecting your marriage, the Sermon on the Mount is a prime candidate, and not just in what Jesus says about divorce in it. Turn over to Matthew 5. Get your Bibles out. Glance at this with me for a sec. Matthew 5. Matthew 5 is where we find the beginnings of the Sermon on the Mount. It goes for a couple chapters. And as you glance over these chapters, consider this. All of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount should be worked out in your marriage as much as they're worked out in all of your other relationships. Who could read through the Beatitudes and not think that what they ask of you lands squarely in your marriage? in your relationship with your spouse. For citizens of the kingdom of heaven, marriage should be marked by poverty of spirit. You should instinctually recognize how your own sin is involved in all of your marital issues. And then by God's grace, also reflexively adopt this posture of repentance and humility that comes with that. Repentance towards your spouse. For citizens of the kingdom of heaven, marriage should be marked by mourning. That may seem opposite to the bliss of marriage, but it should. The kind of mourning that Jesus speaks here of those who are blessed in doing it because it's mourning over sin. You should mourn over the ways that sin and the curse frustrate your marriage, and you should long for the comfort that Christ and his kingdom brings in the midst of that. For citizens of the kingdom of heaven, marriage should certainly be marked by meekness. You should be meek towards your spouse, not... Arrogant, not abusive, not self-assertive, but humble, tender. For citizens of the kingdom of heaven, marriage should be marked by this hunger and thirst for righteousness Jesus speaks about. Seeking to to build a marriage that is characterized by obedience to Christ and all the sweeping demands of his kingdom as it touches every square inch of your life together as husband and wife. For citizens of the kingdom of heaven, marriage should certainly be marked by mercifulness. Whenever your spouse does you wrong, 
It's your calling to extend them the same grace, the same forgiveness that Christ has extended to you. For citizens of the kingdom of heaven, marriage should be marked by purity of heart. Not just as it relates to sexual matters, but you should desire nothing for your spouse and your life together other than the prerogatives of having God and and a vision of him that will come to the pure in heart as being the beating heart of your marital union. For citizens of the kingdom of heaven, marriage should be marked by peacemaking. You should take the initiative to go to your spouse whenever you have conflict. Not be passive. To lay down your pride, lay down your desire to be right. And extend instead that you would value more the bonds of love and unity and peace in your marriage. For citizens of the kingdom of heaven, marriage will certainly be marked by persecution for righteousness' sake, for the sake of Christ's name. The world, the flesh, and the devil are coming after you. They will assault you, and they will assault your marriage at every turn as you endeavor to live it out into the glory of Christ. And so you must be vigilant against those hostilities. I mean, look at Matthew 5, 21 through 26. If there were ever a relationship where Jesus' words about the true meaning of thou shalt not murder found a sweeping application, it is in your marriage. We're all slow to anger in our marriages, right? That's your instinct when your spouse comes home and says something very helpful to you, like, did Mount St. Laundry explode in our bedroom? Your immediate instinct is to, is to sit down and say, you know, maybe we could be more organized, honey. Let me hear some of your helpful suggestions. And when snarkiness or thoughtlessness meet you and your spouse, you respond in patience and charity, right? Now, what often happens, right? Hulk smash! Full frontal verbal assault on your spouse. But, but anger with your spouse is just as much a violation of thou shalt not murder as anger with every other person. In fact, it's more heinous because it is against the bonds of the greatest intimacy and love. Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 27 through 30, about lust in your heart. Certainly, those should spur you on to have marriages that are guarded by a purity of sexual desire for your spouse alone. Jesus' admonitions in Matthew 5, 33 through 37, they have application in your marriage as you keep your word to your spouse. His words about turning the other cheek in verses 38 through 42, that should animate your marriage, shouldn't it? You live in a way that is not retaliatory, but rather loving, forbearing wrongs that have been done. Jesus' instructions about prayer, Matthew 6. That should drive you to have a marriage lived on your knees. Marriages that are saturated with prayer. We could go on and on, but the point is this. The Sermon on the Mount provides us with an outline of the principles that we need to protect and maintain our marriages. Not just all of our other relationships. Christian marriage should be lived out in the dynamic power and logic of the gospel. The gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And so when we think about what it means to fight for a marriage, 
to seek to protect it, even at great cost to ourselves at times, we need to contemplate the analogy that Scripture draws for us between God and his people. The whole of Jesus' preaching in his ministry, this message that the kingdom of heaven has arrived, the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, it's set against this backdrop of what he's preaching in, in, in the midst of Israel's situation. Israel's living on the other end of the exile when Jesus comes to say this to her. And the prophets of the Old Testament told Israel that the exile was, in essence, God writing a certificate of divorce to his people. The tragedy of Deuteronomy 24 is played out by God himself as he comes and writes this bill of divorce, and not for petty reasons. Prophets frame the idolatry and the disobedience of Israel through this metaphor of adultery. Israel whored herself out to idols, they say. She was an unfaithful bride. God had every right to give her a certificate of divorce. And yet the gospel of the kingdom of heaven comes as the expression of a husband who will not let his spouse go, even in her unfaithfulness. That's what the prophet Hosea shows us. God would take his unfaithful bride. He would wed her to himself once more in righteousness and justice and steadfast love and in mercy. And so Jesus' announcement of the gospel of the kingdom of heaven is in essence an announcement that God has torn up his certificate of divorce. Unlike the divorcing husband in Deuteronomy 24, God has shown grace and favor to his spouse. Despite all that is in her that would otherwise undermine that grace and favor. Despite her waywardness, despite her sin, yet he pursues her out of that grace and favor, out of his unconditional electing love for her. He comes to reclaim his disloyal wife. He will not let the marital bonds that he has with his people be dissolved. And so he redeems his bride his unfaithful bride, at the gruesome expense of the cross. The unimaginable sacrificial love of that is what Paul is getting at when he says that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. These are the lengths to which God has gone to protect and to reclaim his marital bonds with his bride. And in so doing, he opens for us the fountainhead of grace that we need to protect, to reclaim our own marital bonds as Christians. In bringing the kingdom of heaven, Christ comes to restore all that's been touched by the curse, including the way the curse has touched this good gift that is marriage. And so consequently, a strong marriage, it not only needs to be lived out in light of the commands of Jesus as he gives them as to what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, it needs also to be lived out in the transforming grace of Jesus. 
which comes to all those who by faith have become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The cross of Christ supplies us with every resource we need for a Christian marriage. It bears up husbands and wives who are growing together in conformity to the likeness of Christ himself. And so as you struggle with the realities of what it means to be a sinner, married to another sinner, and sometimes you find in your heart this question, what, is, what does true love really look like in any given moment in my marriage? Look to the cross, and you will find the answer to that question. There you will see that true love is not the stuff of warm, fuzzy sonnets. True Christ-like love is bloody, ragged, hard-fought self-sacrifice, but sacrifice that is undergirded by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ as he comes to reclaim his bride. God has given marriage to advance his church, and he calls us to protect it in reliance on his grace. Let's pray. Lord, we know what fallible people we are, what darkness lies in our heart, what wreckage we would make of our world and our relationships, our marriages, our families, if we were left to our own resources. Oh, but we are grateful for your love, your grace which has transformed us. We are grateful for how relentlessly faithful you are as our bridegroom. And so we pray that you would give us the grace to more and more reflect your own faithfulness in our lives as we devote ourselves to our spouses, to our children, but most of all as we devote ourselves to you. We ask this in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen.